what happens in full versus partial range of motion movement range of motion movements in general um, that our full range of motion movements kind of sticking with the squat we have more mechanical tension we have greater levels of muscle activation and the partial range of motion however uh, they're still beneficial it's more specific which you know makes sense for a lot of our athletes that need to need to run fast the joint angles are are much more similar you can do more weight because uh, you don't have to experience that mechanical disadvantage and so you can hit higher absolute intensities there or relative intensities i guess and from the evidence a combination of both is the most advantageous and so it, it, again it kind of becomes a very binary discussion of i'm a full range of motion uh kind of strength coach or i'm a partial range of motion kind of strength coach and um there's evidence that actually the combination of the two is going to get athletes the strongest and to increase the rate of force development the most. Um, and so that's probably where we want to lie. That was strength coach and sports scientist John Wagle speaking on partial range versus full range movements and the benefits of both and how combined usage will yield the greatest results. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here today. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show we have Dr. John Wagle. He is a sports scientist, strength coach, and works at Eastern Tennessee State University, which is a mecca of sports science and sports performance. Um, today, we're going to dig deep into the relationships between various training methods and then how those training methods are impacting the structure of the muscle itself. And so really, a lot of it's very easy to look at training just from an exterior perspective, biomechanics, biomechanical similarities, which is huge. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that stuff is... It's critical to success of a program, uh, specificity, but in terms of coming full circle, checking off every box you can in the quest to get athletes to perform at their highest level, it's important to know what's happening on the muscular, muscular and cellular level. And so really excited to have John. John is a fellow in the Sports Physiology and Performance Program at East Tennessee State University. He also serves as the Strength and Conditioning Coach and sports scientist for Eastern Tennessee State Baseball, and he additionally assists Dr. Brad DeWeese in training Olympic site athletes. Previously, John was the director of sports performance at DePaul University. So I always like talking with people who uh, have wear the hat of not only a sports scientist, but a strength and conditioning coach who know the science but are in the art and the practice. And for me personally, um, I'm definitely someone whose brain tends to cater more towards the art side, just the way I'm geared. I, I'm more of a little bit of a big idea person. and But that's why I love talking to people like John, who are so good at not only the art of coaching itself, but also the details. And so the details of what we're going to get into today. Uh, John is an expert at eccentric training, muscle structure and architecture, as well as periodization and planning, amongst other things. And so what I really wanted to get into is, how, what is the effect of barbell training and its derivatives like, like eccentric loading or super maximal training? And what effect does that specifically have on the muscle as opposed to speed training and plyometrics? Or you could even think of it as simply as 
how does once I start training outside my specific skill, let's say my skill is to run the mile as fast as I can. Um, once I get outside of actually running the mile as fast as I can, um, on the, the early outside, you might be doing just long, slow runs, or maybe you're going to do some faster stuff, some fast 400s. Uh, and then you start to get further and further away. You're getting into barbell training, general strength training. Um, all this stuff is good, obviously, but it's only as good as it fits within the context of the whole system. And uh, every exercise has great things to it, but it also has potential drawbacks. And so knowing the benefits and then potential drawbacks and how those can stack together can really give us this optimal arrangement of things as we go to make the best program for our athletes. And that's something I've always looked at and wondered as I've gone through the, the training of myself as an athlete, taking on athletes as a track coach and then a strength coach, uh, seeing and, one, and, and trying to link these exercises to performance. And, and not only that, but also in sequence, thinking, oh, well, maybe I did this in the early training periods, and it, I think it helped, it seemed to help. <laughs> you, know, you try to put that together intuitively, but ultimately, it's awesome to know the science behind things, especially things like how is supermaximal training impacting the distribution of muscle along the length of the muscle? How is it changing pination angle? How does it fit with potentiation? Knowing those things can give us a little extra in terms of our own coaching and our own athletic performance. So some of the topics we're going to cover with John today include eccentric loading for athletic training. Uh, we're also, before we get into that, we're going to get into the muscle architecture itself, things like fascicle length, pination angle. I know those, are, those can be a little bit of complex words, but at the end of the day, um, fascicle length being associated with speed, pination angle with force, and we have training methods that can hit those and combinations of training methods that can hit those things uh, in a different and unique way. It's good to know. Uh, John, we're going to get into eccentric loading with him, how uh, one really heavy rep of a set can impact the rest of the set if you have weight releasers on and the set reps two, three, four, and five are lighter. What does that mean? How does it affect things like eccentric rate of force development? What does it mean for athletes? We're going to get into cluster training. How cluster training impacts the neurology of the set, how it's different from straight sets, and when in the season it could optimally be used, as well as different ways, different weapons in your arsenal, so to speak, on how to use that. As you heard in the teaser, we're going to talk partials versus full range, how those impact the system, and how we can combine those for optimal effect. Finally, we're going to touch briefly on jump training and monitoring. So this episode has a ton of gold in it, and just a ton of not only practice, but also the science behind the practice. And putting together the best program. So super thrilled to have John on the episode today. I know you guys are going to love it and let's get to it. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've been a, a fan for a long time, so it's really humbling to be on as a guest. Yeah, absolutely. I know, um, man, you guys are doing awesome stuff at Eastern Tennessee State. And I remember back back in the days being at the NAI, NAI track and field championship there and meeting Mike Stone and um, still have them here yeah yeah 10 years later well, shoot it's like probably 14 years later um but I, I know you guys do such awesome work and the work you're doing on the muscle architecture and, and eccentric strength I, those are just such cool and pertinent uh, areas in the field so i'm excited to get into that today but uh what's been new in the life of john waglin in strength and conditioning research sports science the last few months or year yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm very fortunate to be like you said kind of at the the best place in the world for sports science and for strength conditioning. I'm uh, very grateful for my time at ETSU and uh, kind of in that, in short, what we've been working on recently, I defended my dissertation, which was uh, mostly about accentuated eccentric loading, but we packed in there some uh, measurement things uh, that had to do with ultrasound and had to do with even predisposition with some some genotyping and things like that. Um, and we've actually put it into practice as well. Um, as part of Dr. Brad DeWeese's staff this summer, you know, he has a whole slew of bobsledders and other winter sports athletes come in. And so we used the ultrasound. We used it alongside uh, some other established monitoring uh, techniques and things like that. So it's been a really exciting time that we've been able to, as is the case at ETSU, go from research to practice uh, pretty seamlessly. So been a busy summer but it's been a fun summer and very informative to keep kind of moving some of these things forward yeah oh, that's awesome man that's really it sounds like you're up to some really good stuff and yeah so i just wanted to kick some kick the questions off today with something that i think I, it's gone back to grad school for me in terms of 
my thoughts on this and, and just hearing a lot of different ideas on how to train it and how to measure it and uh, how there's so many different training modalities outside of actually training your specific sports skill, right? So sure. I'm always I'm always looking at well, what are all these these effects of, of like a, a weightlifting or super maximal weightlifting or all these things? And so, uh, could you start off by telling us what parts of muscle architecture should we be concerned with in training? Yeah, I, I think you know, obviously, to kick off the easiest one is cross sectional area. Um, it's got an established relationship uh, to force production. Uh, it's not the end all be all, however, because there are other factors that go into it, like the two to one ratio and like some neural mechanisms that are going to be at play, tissue stiffness and things like that. Um, but cross-sectional area is a good place to start. Um, there are some other characteristics, obviously like pination angle and fascicle length, uh, that may be of interest to us. And, uh, it also appears that the evidence supports that this form follows function uh, moniker, I guess, has some efficacy here. And so with pination angle, uh, going to kind of just speak in generalities, but in general, pination angle is going to be more uh, associated with force production capabilities and rate of force development. Uh, fascicle lengths are going to be more associated with higher shortening velocities. And so, you know, you, you do have some different aspects that uh, can be influenced in training as well and may influence performance outcomes. So uh, there's a great deal of interest for coaches to at least be aware uh, of maybe what architecture can do uh, to performance outcomes because there is some evidence, a lot of evidence actually, that uh, supports it as an aspect that we should consider. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I And so kind of like to sum up, um, or in my mind, so pination angle is really uh, more to do with the force side of things, like the force, mm -hmm. the strength, and the fascicle lengths would be more of the speed. If you were to polarize it, that, the fascicle lengths would be yep. more speed yeah, than yeah. speed end. Yep, and pination angle is simply the orientation of the fibers. So it, it is, you know, kind of that, uh, the the angle at which the fibers are oriented against the aponeurosis there. And so that if for people that maybe aren't as familiar with pination angle, that's maybe something to point out there too. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to throw that in the show notes. Cause it's like you and I, you know, if you, if you've seen it and you're familiar with it, you think of like the rectus femoris muscle, it's like, okay, sure. ob yeah, obviously, but I'll, I'll have to show, um, throw something in, in there just cause I think that might add a little bit better yeah, yeah, visual absolutely. of how, how those things change. Um, mm -hmm. and so, I mean, in terms of pination angle though, like, um, what about a muscle like a long straight muscle like a, like a biceps or something like that? I mean, are those? Yeah, yeah. So we're we're going to mostly be concerned with um, muscles that do have pination. Like the V vastus lateralis is kind of the the go to in terms of ultrasound measurements, and those are the ones that uh, you know we use mostly uh, in our practice as well when we're conducting athlete monitoring and things like that. It does give us uh, a lot of information that's. Uh, relatively versatile regardless of athletic population but you could do some uh, you know localized looks at different muscles like the gastrocnemius is another popular one um, we tend to stick uh, to the vastus lateralis because we know that we're reliable with that measurement get we get a great deal of information as well and so uh, we, we tend to follow the kiss method I guess a little bit with with what we measure uh, and keep it simple by looking at the VL mostly. Sure. I, what would you say? And this is, I hope I don't go off track here, but like the idea <laughs> of people saying, "Oh, you don't activate your VMO, da da da. Your vastus lateralis is too activated." I mean, is there anything in that realm that could impact things? Or is that really is that really that much of a thing? And is is that something to be concerned about? I I don't think so. Um, you know, there's. Uh, inter and intramuscular coordination issues maybe that could influence some things but the whole uh, activated or not or on or off I think is a little bit too binary for my liking that uh, if we had muscles that were just off I think we'd end up in a lot of situations where we're just falling over or you know doing some things like that uh, that uh, I tend to live more in a gray area with the activated versus not yeah. debate. No, I, I actually, I agree. I, I think I almost like just kind of fed you that question just because like some people are like, oh, VMO, I, I don't know, it just popped in my head. I'm just like, that drives me nuts yeah, too. Yeah. Your VMO doesn't work, yep. your glutes don't work, whatever, like, okay. Uh, uh, so, yeah, um, but one of the, so with the muscle architecture, and this is the thing I'm always thinking of is whenever we do something that's not, if we want to run faster, for example, probably the most mm -hmm. basic 
athletic skill people want to get better at but everything that's not running as fast as you can is going to do something different right and so right and and just as simple as things as simple as weightlifting or or um, plyometrics or, or any training means or, or weighted loaded stretching things that are different and interesting and unique and they'll have their own package um what's a basic primer on how some of these training means are impacting the architecture so different forms of barbell training yeah yeah so i think you know i'll kind of keep it in the um just simple classification that we had talked about earlier and just what potential influences does this architecture have on performance that in general Strength training is going to uh, obviously increase the cross-sectional area, but also it tends to uh, increase the pination angle. And in theory, that's adding sarcomeres in parallel. And that's where the increase in force production potential comes from. Speed training, uh, we tend to lean mostly on cross-sectional research, looking at sprinters versus other types of runners like distance runners or controls that the sprinters tend to have longer fascicle lengths. Um, but there is some training uh, evidence as well to support that sprint training increases fascicle length. Uh, there's one study uh, in particular that uh, I think is really important. That's uh, the lead author is Blazovic, and he looked at three different uh, types of training. It was a combination strength training only and then speed training only, and basically got the results that you would expect that the combination or that the strength training group increased fination angle csa that the speed training group uh increased in fascicle length but the combination group uh if i'm remembering correctly tended to look more like the strength training group um and so what we might have there is a strength of signal or you know something like that that uh speaks to the emphasis de-emphasis as you move through the training process that uh there may be some calculated manipulations that uh, you can leverage here and you need to be aware of kind of your training process in its entirety because the fact of the matter is very rarely are we doing strength training in a vacuum, speed training in a vacuum, no training in a vacuum. You know, so um, with that emphasis, the emphasis of the various components, uh, we need to be uh, taking measurements. And that's where you can be informed through athlete monitoring because you can kind of provide that context to your process and know what's happening on a much deeper level. Yeah. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about how you, how do you go about measuring this on the fly? Cause if I'm, if I have a training program and I have a particular, and I'm working with a track sprinter, the most basic way you can look mm -hmm. at it. Uh, and I want to get them faster and i have a particular amount of barbell training in there or your eccentric training or, or Olympic or, yeah, yeah. or a combination of means. I want to see how it's impacting things. Uh, how do you, how are you measuring this and, and how do you uh, assess that as you go forward? Yeah, I think the, you know, this is where kind of ultrasound does come into play. Um, and it's not the most accessible piece of technology, but it is becoming more accessible. There's uh, certain companies that are doing USB-based uh, devices that you can plug right into a laptop and things like that um, to get some, some greater practicality uh, to a device that's been mostly reserved for clinical use, essentially. But... Um, in general, we kind of use the ultrasound to give us a two-dimensional static measure of the muscle, and that obviously has its limitations because that's not you know, the way the muscle operates. It's in three dimensions and dynamic, and so we are uh, limited a little bit in the measurement type for, for sure, but um, when we consider the ultrasound alongside things uh, like the isometric mid-thigh pull, our jump testing, other aspects of an established monitoring program, that's when it becomes uh, really, really informative. So, you know, in my opinion, the measures of muscle architecture alone um, are relatively superficial, but can provide a great deal of uh, context to all the other tests that you are conducting and can kind of explain a little bit of what you're seeing uh, with some of the more traditional tests. Uh, so essentially with the ultrasound, you, you very much so take this general scientific knowledge of this is what pination angle does to rate of force development, and you contextualize it within your monitoring system to your athletes. And so um, it becomes very useful. It becomes very practical um, if you kind of know how all these pieces fit together. 
Yeah, the, the human body is such a complex organism in training, right? There's always so many things. I, and I, mm-hmm. When I heard you had used ultrasound, uh, it was really interesting to me. I remember back 14 years ago in grad school, I was doing a, a little research project in one of my classes on, it was Katero Kubo's work on the ultrasound and the how much did the tendon like elongate yep. um, when you yep. pulled on, when the muscle contracted mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. You can use that for performance. And I, yeah. I, I thought it was... Uh, a really interesting facet and so you talked uh with blazovich and the combination methods and so what are some of the what are some things that you're seeing so far in terms of when we have a particular amount of um, a type of lifting in the program or just like just like general guidelines how in a combination program i should say because right even any program especially a team sport program they're still going to be going and playing their sport right. and that's speed training, and so it's always a combination program, right? But um, so, what uh, what are some practical things that you are seeing so far with applying uh, different loads and means? I know it's a really broad question, but yeah, yeah, you know, with uh, I mean, most of my experiences in looking at this information is uh, under Dr. Weiss, uh, kind of wearing the sports scientist hat uh, as a member of of his staff versus uh, kind of wear the coaching hat and some other aspects, but. Uh, and that, you know, kind of what we've seen is that, um, you know, the athletes that he works with are very, very talented and uh, very, very high level. And the changes that we see essentially follow the literature, that they get stronger as their pination angles increase, as their muscles get bigger. Um, and what we try to do is uh, kind of make sure that nothing is going too out of control um, and that these athletes, because they're so high level, uh, that we're getting just reliable testing measures and um, giving that back to Dr. Deweese so that he can he can make good decisions. But um, the pination angle seems to be the one that's influenced the most drastically, um, which which does make sense considering this is, this is the early off season for them and they're in year one of a quadrennial that you would you know the emphasis being their strength and their resistance training and. Uh, things like that, that it kind of was what we expected to see. Um, but I'm hoping that this uh, gains some more popularity, quite honestly, because we are in uh, the very early stages of this. I mean, part of uh, what we did in my dissertation work was even uh, show how the posture in which you collect the positions influences the relationship to performance outcomes. And so um, the traditional is lying down, and we stood people up because that's what you have to do when you perform and the standing measures related much more uh, greatly in magnitude and more abundantly compared to lying measures. And so um, I'd love to give more practical, like this is what happens when you do this. But um, just the reality of it is that we're very early stages with this, which is an exciting place to be in my opinion, because I think we're really onto something great um, and we're onto something that can be, a very nice supplement to traditional even anthropometrics like body composition and girth measurements and things like that that uh, this can kind of be a piece of the puzzle that really speaks to uh, the performance potential uh, of an athlete because as as we know the um, the performance testing jumps pulls things like that you know they uh, sometimes because we have to collect monitoring data in the real world that we're not getting them necessarily in an optimal state of readiness to do their testing every single, you know, block to block, for example. Um, and so if we can add this muscle size architecture piece to it, um, it just gives us another, uh, piece of information that we can assess the training response of that athlete. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. With the training response, too, I wanted to ask you about sequencing as well. So with applying mm-hmm. different forms of training at different times, I, I, I guess the way I see it, the typical um, arrangements and, and periodizations, you're looking at um, the strength work, and then you move more into more speed realm. How, how plastic is the way the muscle changes? I mean, how quickly is the pination angle and the fascicle length going to see changes how long does it take to make that happen yeah i um you know i I, i'm not confident in giving exact timetables but i do think that you get um by understanding 
uh, your training process. I mean, this becomes somewhat qualitative in nature that, okay, I, I know the sequencing, I know the progressions that I'm going through, and this is maybe what I should expect. But just like in, uh, in anything, we might have a situation where we can change the emphasis of what we are looking at in our monitoring data, just like we are changing the emphasis of what we are uh, working on in the training process. Um, and so in the case of the ultrasound in particular, in these first couple blocks where you are in strength endurance and you are in basic strength, uh, you would expect to see uh, changes in cross-section area, potentially uh, some changes in pination angle. Um, but you might want to emphasize that as you move through a block or two just to make sure um, that you're not observing any muscle swelling in addition to actual changes in the muscle size. Um, and aspects like that, that having this emphasis on cross-sectional area, for example, for a couple blocks beyond maybe when you're emphasizing uh, muscle hypertrophy is valuable because you do have muscle swelling to consider. You also um, need mRNA, for example, to accumulate, and that tends to take a few weeks uh, before you'll see true size changes in the muscle. Um, and so by kind of taking this systematic approach to not only the data collection, but the way you look at it uh, could be meaningful. So to kind of finish that, then as you move towards um, the realization phase, essentially, where you might be um, more concerned with high-end power productions or running very fast, uh, things like that, then you might look at things like vascular length. You might look at uh, how pination angle is changing and how that might influence rate of force development and uh, be more in a let's make sure we're maintaining muscle mass look at the cross-sectional area for example um, and, and so just like the training process we we have these emphasis this emphasis de-emphasis and we have kind of what's important right now um, because if you're kind of implementing a concentrated load then you want to make sure that the changes that you're seeing are following uh, that concentrated load and so that's uh, kind of how I view this fitting in um in an, into an annual plan or into the long-term preparation of an athlete yeah i this the changes as the sequencing moves forward i think is really really interesting to me i was thinking of a podcast that robbie burke did with uh franz bosch and they were talking about mm -hmm. uh the pination angle change during like a hypertrophy type phase was so much that the, there was the idea that the coordination was thrown off because now the the muscle gearing is so different that the the signal is different uh, or something like that. It was like the, yeah, so, the I mean, the as you change the physical stuff, capacities yeah. of the athlete, they need to kind of learn how to use that new physical development essentially. Um, and that's, that's why, uh, you know, really, really good coaches do pair physical development with aspects of motor learning. Um, and you, you see it all across the board. Um, that's why I'm very fortunate, honestly, to work with who I work with because, you know, that's exactly uh, what they do. And they do it very, very well. Uh, and so that's a, a good opportunity to kind of see how everything fits together. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It makes me think of like, yeah, if you really were absent of your sports skills and just were throwing down massive uh, strength and, and bodybuilding style work mm -hmm. in the weight room being really sympathetically driven, um, mm -hmm. the impact on the skill would be, could be kind of derogatory, especially as Absolutely. soon as you came out of that. Yeah. And, and even, um, you know, tying this kind of back to measuring the muscle is you can make detrimental changes uh, in muscle size. For, for example, the, uh, the kind of classic look at this uh, tying in now eccentric training as well is that eccentric training tends to make muscle size changes at the distal portion of the muscle. Uh, that's, there's evidence that that has happened in multiple studies, and there's a recent paper uh, that looked at localized uh, focal adhesion kinase expression, which is, um, you know, going to drive muscle size changes. And that was at the distal portion of the muscle following eccentric training. So if we even take like the quadricep in general. So if I make a lot of size changes towards the distal portion of the muscle, the sprinter, again, kind of keeping it into a, a simple application here, has to lift his knee. And it's got a lot of weight now towards towards the end of it, and that's going to make it less advantageous for him to run fast. Um, versus if we make our muscle size changes more proximal at the hip, 
then that's going to be more uh, advantageous for his sprinting performance. And so uh, that's where we need to be really careful in when and how and what changes uh, that we're making. Because if you're incorporating, for example, a lot of eccentric quadricep work towards the time where an athlete needs to run really fast, that's not going to be very advantageous. And so uh, having a plan is really important and having measures that inform that plan uh, is equally important. And so you get into uh, considerations then of uh, do I take multiple site measures? You know, do I, if I'm looking at the quad, do I take a proximal, middle, and distal measurement to make sure that that entire muscle is influenced in the in the proper way, depending on the sport, of course. But it's yeah. definitely a consideration to make. Oh, right on. And so, yeah, what you just said there is, is gold, man. And I think that's that's something that I'm so interested in, right, is, is all the side effects of these training means that mm-hmm. are different and fundamentally different. And I know with eccentric training, the it, it's been proven to increase fascicle length which I think is why so many coaches would would, yeah. would use it in the structure. And I'm not saying yep. it's bad. Like it's I I, I think it's can be a great tool. Uh, but Absolutely. but it was reminding me of a Dan Fichter podcast I did not too long ago where he was like, you know, everything has some sort of drawback to it. That's not mm-hmm. your actual skill. It's going to have good, but it's also going to have something that you need to look at in context. And so uh, and so sure. the distal. I I had heard that before. I I I'm not as specifically as you had mentioned it, but that eccentric training strengthened the distal. Portion. I for some reason I thought it was like the outside parts and some another form of training strengthened the middle part of the muscle, but maybe I'm totally off. I don't really remember exactly that. Yeah, I mean it depends on uh, the musculature, exercise selection, things like that. Yeah, just kind of speaking in generalities on that one, but that it is uh, definitely a reason we need to be careful with <laughs> the exercise selection, with the type of training, with the phase specific loading, you know, with eccentric overload and um, things like that that we need to be very careful with because not only are they potentially fatiguing but they're potentially changing uh size and architecture in a way that's it was not intended yeah no right on i mean and and that's one of the things too is i I remember you had posted this on twitter not too long ago it was a a layout of of all these different sprinters and Mm -hmm. and i think sprinters versus non-sprinters and how they're um, some of their muscles were much bigger than the non-sprinters, some weren't, but how there's such a specific, um, to the individual, uh, layout of, of how, what makes you fast. And it's right. like, as soon as you start playing with where the muscle is <laughs> and it, yeah. it could throw things off a little bit. And so every time we try to intensify that, but I did want to actually get into eccentric training a little bit more as mm-hmm. well in terms of, um, applying it, how, how to, pra- how do I practically apply eccentric training and sure. uh, what's your experience with applying it forms of using it and and so on yeah uh, and this is um kind of where my dissertation work sat for the most part um and what we saw uh there in general was number one when you overload the eccentric you have to do a lot more eccentric work which is very logical um but we also saw that eccentric rate of force development increased uh substantially there Interestingly, uh, it remains elevated, even if you only overload the first repetition. Repetitions two and repetitions three tended to also remain elevated as if the weight, we use back squats and weight releasers as if the weight releasers were still on. So that's a very practical piece for coaches because that's the, that's the rub with implementing eccentric overload training or accentuate eccentric loading is that, man, I just don't have the coaches uh, to support putting these things back on every single time. So if they're holding on to those eccentric characteristics, even after the weight releasers are gone, uh, that means that we're kind of satisfying that mechanistic criteria that we would expect potentiation. And so that's where a lot of the practical application for AEL comes in is that we overload the eccentric to potentiate uh, the concentric. Unfortunately, in my study, that's not what we observed. Uh, But I don't think that that's necessarily um, stating that AEL does not cause potentiation because there's been plenty of papers that have observed that. What I think happened uh, in our study in particular uh, was that the relative loading was too close together. So we did 105% eccentric and 80% of 1RM on the concentric. Um, and that's a 25% relative difference is what I'm saying. And there, most of the evidence that sh- does uh, have potentiation observed has 
much larger. Uh, 30% seems to be the bare minimum, but even 40 to 60% of a contrast uh, appears to elicit potentiation. So in terms of uh, practical application, kind of where I'm at now with it is that uh, number one, the overload does not necessarily need to be supra maximal, and that's where people think AEL. Well, it's got to be over 100% one RM, and I don't necessarily think that's the case. What I do think is the most important piece, um, as of right now, uh, is that relative difference. And so, by having that contrast, then you're increasing the likelihood uh, that you will observe potentiation. Now, there's other things like are they strong enough uh, to to have this uh, happen to them and more importantly I think is are they technically proficient in whatever exercise you're choosing in order to not have it fundamentally change their technique because uh, that is going to have detrimental effects uh, you know either from the from purely putting more stress on tissue that you're not intending to, and then you accidentally cause some indiscriminate hypertrophy or you know something like that. But also because it is a very advanced programming tactic, you have uh, maybe a greater chance of getting injured when that technique is altered. And we, have, of course, do not want that. But um, I think that kind of if you have the larger relative contrast, if you have an athlete that's very technically proficient, um, and you have the opportunity now to only overload the first repetition. You're looking at a situation that is pretty practical and does have some um, both theoretical and actually observed benefits uh, using accentuated eccentric loading for strength power athletes, and that's where I'll kind of make that still fit. Um, and for the sake of uh, being brief, that's mostly because with eccentric overload training, you see a lot of changes, uh, particularly at the cellular level with myosin heavy chain expression and things like that, that would favor those populations uh, rather than maybe an endurance athlete. I gotcha. And with, so you mentioned AEL. Does that stand for accentuated eccentric loading? Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. Cool, cool. And so you, you set that up with the weight releasers on the first rep. They do the first rep at 105 and then drop to 80%. And yep. then, um, and how many reps total would they, would be a set? So you do the one eccentric and then how many at 80 or is most athletes? Yeah. So I, I think in terms of maintaining that eccentric rate of force development and, and maintain that elevated level of eccentric rate of force development, that three reps is probably uh, where you're at. We did five. Uh, in my actual data collection for my dissertation, but uh, they tended to fall back down to earth, the subjects did, um, after the third repetition in terms of the eccentric mm -hmm. characteristics. The concentric characteristics, like I said, we didn't observe any potentiation there, and what we saw was people getting tired. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, I think that's because the, the difference was just a little bit too uh, narrow. And so I would expect, you know, even now kind of seeing it applied uh, this summer, a couple of the bobsled athletes under Dr. Deweese's programming used AEL um, that had a very large relative difference in there. And it, it appeared uh, we didn't make any measurements, you know, within training at the time or anything like that. Um, but it appeared that uh, that seemed to be the set configuration that that was working the best for those athletes. Sure. So they were more at like a 30 or 40% uh, difference yep. versus the uh, 25 that you had. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. It seems like a pretty brutal set. You got to do one at 105 and then five at 80. That last one might be a little bit grinder for a few people. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's, it's kind of those that um, were inefficient yeah. tended to get more tired. And so that's where that, that technique piece is so important and it's often quickly overlooked with especially when we talk about you know maybe some some deeper science you know we still have to be coaches and we still have to take pride uh in the way that the athletes are executing the movements regardless of the tactic that you're implementing and that's where you can kind of get lost in the excitement of oh my gosh they're going to do 120 percent on the eccentric phase let's mm -hmm. you know turn up the music and get to work but now you still have to have that attention to detail probably even more so when you're implementing those advanced strategies yeah especially too. i imagine if someone got under 120 and and their strategy for or for a squat and their mm -hmm. strategy is to have a lot of forward hip flexion and trunk lean to deal with that versus yep. having it hit hit their legs more 
like we had talked about before the different the different muscular adaptations to that and mm-hmm. it makes me think a little bit about i think cal Dietz likes really likes the, like this the single legs or the split squat type sure. stuff and overloading that and um so it, it definitely is something to um pay good uh, detail towards i, I was going to ask you as well uh rate how do you measure rate of force development um on the eccentric because i think that seems almost counterintuitive to some people like how does that manifest itself yeah so we um we use the squat obviously uh so we had to look at some literature to see how they had measured as well and what seemed to be the most agreed upon was to actually take the point at which they're transitioning from eccentric to concentric phase so we had a potentiometer that we could get the displacement value um, so basically at the bottom of that squat, and then we move 250 milliseconds before that time point uh, and called that the kind of critical window that we were assessing rate of force development. So the eccentric rate of force development was essentially the bottom of the squat and the 250 milliseconds prior to the bottom of the squat. Okay. Um, so essentially what you're looking at there is when they lose the mechanical advantage and the influence of that overload uh, truly on the bottom characteristics of of the back squat. So, in I yeah. guess in a nutshell, better a better reversal or setting up exactly. A reversal. I, and the reason we chose 250 milliseconds is because north of that is when you start to see energy dissipated as heat rather than stored and returned in the concentric phase. And so we could have shrunk that window certainly and and looked at a narrower time point, um, but we chose to kind of be at that outer end because that's kind of what the previous studies. Uh, recommended but you could certainly look at it in some different manners and maybe get some different information out of it too you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah so if we're talking squat too and i think the idea of muscle length and i don't know where in the eccentric guess the muscle length would come from i mean would it have to be a full range of motion eccentric to really get those benefits i mean if you did like a quarter squat and blasted it super max would you be not looking for that i, I don't would imagine the research on is not out on that but yeah yeah so I, you're right and that's probably why i'd more lean to just you know what is what happens in full versus partial range of motion movement range of motion movements in general um that our full range of motion movements kind of sticking with the squat we have more mechanical tension we have greater levels of muscle activation um, because we're maybe working with a shorter moment arm, there's a uh, reduced cross bridge formation, whatever the case may be, there's a reduced force production per sarcomere even. Like you can go into a lot of theoretical aspects as to why that's happening. And the partial range of motion, however, uh, they're still beneficial. It's more specific, which you know makes sense for a lot of our athletes that need to need to run fast the joint angles are are much more similar you can do more weight because uh, you don't have to experience that mechanical disadvantage and so you can hit higher absolute intensities there or relative intensities i guess and it's especially an advantageous strategy when we're looking to reduce the volume load displacement maybe as we go through a taper um, to help the realization of some fitness qualities um, but it's not reserved for that period of time necessarily because partial movements can be used as associate exercises to maybe increase the strength at a specific range of motion as you're working on the strength of a full range of motion movement so like there's utility there but overall um, kind of what you get from the evidence is that a combination of both is the most advantageous and so again it kind of becomes a very binary discussion of I'm a full range of motion uh, kind of strength coach or I'm a partial range of motion kind of strength coach and um, there's evidence that actually the combination of the two is going to get athletes the strongest and to increase the rate of force development the most um, and so that's probably where we want to lie um, and there is a study from ETSU that looked at that specifically and they looked at a group that did uh, all full range of motion and a group that did a combination and lo and behold the partial partial and full range of motion group that combination group outperformed uh the full range of motion group in pretty much everything that they measured and so that's kind of where we're at is um knowing how to blend these strategies and knowing how to use them at the right time and knowing how to sequence them uh that becomes the most important uh when we're considering eccentrics or when we're considering full versus partial or we're 
you know, considering any one of these programming strategies or tactics, that's going to be the most important aspect. Yeah, I, I always enjoy talking um, about, especially about things where it's not a binary world, right? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. we've discussed this multiple times throughout, but, like, people love to jump on one side. Like you said, I'm a full range of motion guy. I'm a yeah, partials yeah. guy. I'm a, a, you know, whatever it may be, whatever your thing may be in the black and making something black and white. But I always love how the research says, well, if you do it together, <laughs> you're going to yeah. get a better result. And what about, like, the sequencing in that? I, I don't want to take off a tangent. I actually have a couple, just a couple more eccentric right. questions. But if you're... I mean, with the research, we know that both a combination of both is the best. So, um, do you feel like doing things in tandem, or uh, I mean, the t- the common would probably be go full squats, half squats, maybe some quarters mm-hmm. at the end of the year. Uh, yeah. Any sort of, I mean, it, it, thoughts yeah, on that I, whole sequencing? I um, it, you know, it's I try my best to avoid this type of answer, but I'll I'll pull it out now. With it depends. Um, and you know, it, it depends because, you know, obviously every sport, every athlete, every situation is going to be different, but, um, there's a ton to support the, um, efficacy of variation in a training program and having that maximized performance potential. And that's essentially, uh, manipulating the displacements becomes another aspect, another thing that you can, uh, manipulate to achieve greater variation in the training plan. Um, and that's where I think it, it sits. So as long as you are making logical, sound, evidence-based decisions um, in how you sequence that, uh, then I think you, you've, you've made your case, essentially. Now, in general, uh, moving from full to partials is probably the most logical as you move from general to specific, as you uh, look to have greater amounts of volume and work to lesser amounts of volume and work and greater intensities. Uh, that tends to be the most logical, but... Uh, you know, like I said earlier, you can make the case that um, a partial squat is a valuable associate exercise for the full squat uh, when you're trying to increase strength early on in GPP or anything like that. So um, it, it's a little bit more nuanced of an answer than uh, than maybe we were hoping, but uh, but that is the reality of of using some of these things. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of coaches may have a hard time, especially when you have a heavy influence by the the full range or nothing group of of mm-hmm. you you're crossing that line and going only into partials it's like whoa like where's the yeah. deep squats and now you 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 some sort of holy grail was like you know throw cast aside or something right. like that but because you do lose a lot of the mechanical tension you lose a lot of uh you know stress around the musculotendinous junction that is important to keep those athletes healthy um and so even when you're say within you know, the late stages of a competitive season or a competition phase in general, like you're still going to have uh, full squats in there, maybe as warm up sets or warm mm-hmm. down sets, even if your work sets are partials. Um, and so there, there are strategies to where even uh, within a microcycle, within a block, there's still a blend. Um, so it's not even that this block we use fulls, this block we use partials. It, it's oftentimes uh, very uh, creative manipulation of how to blend these characteristics together to make the most of the performance outcomes yeah oh right on and as we were talking actually something that popped in my head i actually had to write it down because well i'll mention it now too so i get to double remember it but like i had this idea of i've seen research and and i was working on this pretty extensively and kind of finishing a a big book project over the last three years but the whole full and partials debate and the research does tend to tip its hat towards it once you're strong enough in a full like mm-hmm. one 1.5 1.75 body weight the partials are where it's at like in terms of those really need to be addressed and i was thinking you know if you really still wanted to do the full range of motion work which you were mentioning very important the tension um at the mm-hmm. bottom and then just getting full range work in single leg maybe be, be, be like warming up with single leg full range of motion movements skater squats pistol squats mm-hmm. it's more functional triplanar if you will and then you got the blast it with the, the partials and anyways that's just where my mind went but yeah I, I, uh, absolutely I, I think that's um that's good stuff uh and, and so in terms of sequencing too and, and eccentric and overloading eccentric overloading the first rep to two questions for you john uh one mm-hmm. at, uh, at what time in the season would you look to implement this in the grand scheme of training? And then two, when is an athlete ready for this type of work? Yeah. Um, so in terms of when, I, I think that it's logical to have kind of that requisite strength level. Um, and so you're 
probably going to be dealing with some very uh, substantial acute fatigue, and so it probably fits best um, and most conservatively as a kind of supramaximal stimulus, if you will, for muscle hypertrophy. And so I don't, I don't mind it in strength endurance uh, or in a hypertrophy phase, um, mostly because that's when it's okay to have great amounts of fatigue because you're also trying to develop work capacity and uh, some other aspects as well. So um, I think that's probably the safest win. Um, but if you have a very strong athlete, you have a very technically proficient athlete, then um, putting it into a spot where you want to induce potentiation um, is logical. And that's where you can maybe combine strategies like accentuate eccentric loading with cluster sets. Um, and you can leverage kind of the good of of multiple strategies as long as the athlete uh, has had a favorable response early on in the training too. Is, is don't make it so uh, novel when you're trying to peak or you know anything like that that you're giving them AEL for the first time. But um, in terms of the part two there of what makes an athlete ready, I kind of touched on it a little bit. Is that I think they need to be very strong, um, but. I'm not 100% sure on that yet, actually. I think the technique aspect is, is really, really important. Um, and overloading the eccentric phase, regardless, it, it's still going to elicit that higher degree of mechanical tension and um, probably have a drastic influence on muscle hypertrophy. So that, I think, is um, something that can span maybe some uh, people who aren't double body weight back squatters, for example. But um, from the fatigue management piece, we do need to be conservative with that, that we need to acknowledge that that is going to potentially uh, bury somebody mm-hmm. that, that's maybe not as strong. And so that's where it's a, kind of a juice worth the squeeze situation um, that AEL may not be for those athletes just because of the risk-reward situation there. But um, in general, I, I think having that strength level in place, having that technique in place, um, and really kind of zooming out of your training process and being able to say like, okay, this logically fits here is the other aspect of it, which is a little bit, again, more kind of qualitative or softer in nature, but an important consideration too. Oh yeah. Right on. Uh, and so you mentioned, uh, clusters. I really, really wanted to get into that too, John. I know we talked about it yep. a little bit before and clusters always fascinates me, uh, to be honest, I feel like I'll, I'll get into places in training of myself or my athletes where I use it and I love it. And then for some reason, my novelty mind kicks in yep. and I move to something else. And then I, I think back to when I use it, like, oh, that was awesome. And I, 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 right. I, and so anyways, can you tell me a little bit about um, how you're using the eccentric and clusters or just cluster training in general and how you're utilizing that with your athletes? Yeah, I think that uh, clusters are uh, potentially a very valuable tool. We talked a lot about kind of this uh, taper, overreach, and then taper or the realization phase um, that clusters become a really useful tool. Uh, they, there's a lot of evidence that they have higher power outputs, higher velocity outputs, and overall just increase the power generating capacity of the athlete. And that was something that we observed in my dissertation as well, because uh, cluster sets were uh, part of what we looked at. And it's also hypothesized that cluster sets probably influence the nervous system more so than anything, which fits, again, in kind of a block periodization phase potentiation model kind of into that uh, realization piece. And depending on the cluster structure, you can uh, maybe elicit some potentiation using uh, undulation or wave loading within the cluster set uh, that can be really, really advantageous as you're at a point where um, having high, high, high levels of power output within training uh, is very, very important um, that that potentiating effect or the inter-repetition inter- rest uh, allows them to express a higher overall output. That's very, very advantageous as you carry an athlete into the primary competition of the season or the most important competition of the season. The drawbacks essentially are, uh, are when and how frequently and uh, what other things are, are we going to do alongside of it. And that's where, uh, you know, I think, maybe too much variation is the kiss of death uh, with people more often than not is that uh, they try to blend too many strategies together along with clusters instead of just letting the clusters uh, do what they do best and that's elicit overall higher outputs and maybe some nervous system adaptations yeah Uh, what are some favorite uh, setups what are kind of some go-to setups of clusters itself for strength or or power uh, in your athletes how do you rest in, in the cluster sets themselves 
Yeah, I think that, um, you know, moving kind of even from a, just to provide an example, going from maybe a moderate to a heavy down to a light, um, either within a set or across three sets, uh, allows you to check some boxes to light, make it more likely to elicit potentiation. And so, um, you know, moving from heavy to light is, uh, provides that contrast and, um, sets you up into a situation where you're maybe driving the outputs up overall, but you're also allowing the athlete to be exposed to a variety of power outputs, um, which again has them maybe more robustly developed uh, essentially when you need it the most. Um, and so there are some different set and repetition configurations that you can get creative with, um, but just kind of having that logical decision-making process to um, – try to elicit the effect that you're seeking because that's the other piece is what are you trying to do um, if you seek potentiation then yeah maybe a moderate heavy light structure will work and um, but if you're trying to do something else then you might explore some different options you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah so so moderate heavy light would that be like uh do us do a double with like 75 percent do a single with 90 and then drop down to 60 and do three or something like sure that? yeah yeah that that might be easy i'd probably keep the reps the same across the board but okay. yeah i mean that might be an example of how to uh manipulate the intensity there oh sure cool yeah i i i'd never heard of that before actually i it makes me think a little bit well my first intro to clusters was dan john and pavel easy strength and it was like do do one rip rep, rest 20 seconds two reps rest 20 seconds three reps then you you know that sets over you add weight and it's all with the same weight and just doing that mm-hmm. I, I really loved it i was like wow this is really cool and uh at, i'd then seen the Actually, the only other heavy light type thing I'd seen was some of Christian Thibodeau's work and taking his neurotyping course. But a lot of them were set up for um, like almost bodybuilding paradigms. Like it's like a giant set. Mm-hmm. It was like a you do a, a single or a couple reps with really heavy, and then you end up at like sixty percent, almost burning out. Sure. Like this full spectrum, cover everything yeah. imaginable. So I guess the 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 variation is just. I mean, you're keeping it very simple. Like you same same reps, same. Um, yep. It's probably easier to track the exact adaptations. I, I think keeping it simple is important only so that you as the coach can tease out exactly what manipulation is causing what effect. And like I said, when you have so many ingredients in there, uh, a lot of times you get lost in your own <laughs> variation, essentially. Um, and it makes it difficult to decipher what's working and what's not. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um... I was thinking too, actually, you know, I, I probably have done a little bit of work of clusters before I really heard of it because I, I, had, I had done like going from like four sets of five or six sets of three cleans to 20 sets of one on 30 seconds. Sure. I, I put 20 pounds on my clean. I was like, oh, this is cool. And like, yeah, yeah. and then I decided to start doing the same thing with depth jumps instead of you're going to do sure, a yeah, set absolutely. of 10, do 10 sets of one. And, and we would just, mm-hmm. when I was coaching track and field uh, full time, we would just write on the chalkboard. It's like you have 10 and 30 seconds out. And every time they did a rep, they would, they would erase a, a little mark off the board that I had because otherwise we would totally lose track. There's no way. Right, exactly. And you don't want to have to think of how many reps you have done as you're doing it. You just want to get them all done. Right. And so, uh, it, so in terms of the course of the year I and mean, planning your periodization, would you tend to gravitate towards going from more straight sets and then as you go, you're breaking it up into clusters as you move forward? In general, yeah. In general, because some of what you're trying to stave off, uh, you know, maybe later in training is that fatigue aspect um and so if you start using cluster sets there's probably going to be less metabolite accumulation and aspects like that that are potentially uh fatiguing or going to make an athlete sore uh or something like that that uh you know clusters become the tool to let you maintain certain qualities but have a greater likelihood for the development of others um and those others are probably the most important ones the that you're after um in terms of like peak power production and uh things like that yeah so so clusters the way you program them are more uh they're more like just seeking the neural adaptations so you can really kind of put that in its in its box to track the results and then have more of the structural the metabolite accumulation in the blocks yep. proceeding yep. and w- essentially with uh I, i'm kind of in an snc role with uh with our baseball program here and we used clusters after our functional overreach just to be it as part of our taper. Um, so we did a functional overreach where we still had straight sets. And then for the two weeks following, 
uh, we started to move into clusters in week one, and then we brought partials in in the in the second week following the overreach to kind of really cut down the displacement and move them into what they were preparing for at the time was the conference tournament. Um, and so there's you know just maybe an example to blend some of those characteristics uh, as you're seeking. Uh, realization of whatever fitness qualities you're after oh yeah right on and so with the functional overreach too i've always thought about this it's like if you're going to overreach you you said straight sets you would want to probably overreach more in terms of some of the structural stuff because if you overreach the nervous system that's kind of harder to come back from yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah if you overreach with cluster sets or something or super maximal it might might screw you up Correct. a little, <laughs> yep. a little yep. bit longer than you hoped. Um, cool. I love it. All right. Well, hey, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so I know I want to get into some of this RSI work. And uh, oh, yeah. so jump testing, jump training, jump testing. Uh, could you yep. talk to me about um, the RSI and RSI modified tests? What what are they? And then how do you utilize them? Yeah. So for traditional RSI, um, basically both reactive strength indexes are looking at uh, I'd steal this from Daniel Martinez with the how high, how fast. So with the traditional RSI, you're looking at jump height over the ground contact time, typically from a drop jump. And RSI modified, you typically you know use the counter movement jump. And essentially, RSI is looking to assess fast stretch shortening cycle, the reactive strength as it's often termed. And then the RSI modified is looking to assess slow stretch shortening cycle and um, maybe more of an elastic strength. Um, and in the past, I've used the traditional RSI a little bit with my athletes at DePaul, with my men's basketball athletes. Um, and we, we were essentially just, you know, looking to have a measure that maybe related to change of direction or acceleration or, you know, things like that, just because I felt like there were so many problems with, uh, you know, your traditional change of direction tests that I, I wasn't a huge fan of any of them. But um, I've got a little bit more experience now with the RSI modified, um, and I like the RSI modified because it's very scalable. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the Simply Faster article, but using basketball as an example, that it's fatigue sensitive, and so you can you know kind of acutely manage that aspect and manage your microcycle. But it's also potentially because it's assessing slow stretch shortening cycle or elastic strength that it's also important for their performance potential. Um, and, and so when you have a metric like the RSI modified, I think it's very valuable uh, because you can start to speak the same language no matter if you're looking in the short term or the long term with uh, the changes that you're seeing in training. And that's when I think you've got a really good metric in place. And I think that somebody who's doing this very well in terms of blending the two as well, I, I had the opportunity to go visit uh, Duncan French and Bo Sandoval and everybody at the UFC Performance Institute recently, and their uh, their paper that just came out of their booklet actually uh, is really, really informative, and uh, what they did really well was they showed kind of the differences between RSI and RSI Mod and how that allows them to examine just different aspects of force velocity capabilities along with some other tests as well. But um, they're doing wonderful work out there. and I think it's very useful and they explain it uh, very, very well. Um, but overall, I think that both have their place. Both are giving you a piece of information that is useful depending on the athletic population. Um, and I, I think that both are also reliable and worthy of being included in a monitoring program that those are um, aspects of performance that you want to examine. You mentioned, uh, John, the, the slow stretch shortening. I, I think that a lot of people just think of only fast stretch shortening, right? Like the faster, sure. the better, the faster, the better. Um, and, and this, especially in, in team sport play in situations. And I, I come from a more of a track background and not that I don't think of all sports, obviously, but I'm slow, slow SSC isn't the first thing that pops into my head a lot. Sure, could, sure. You, could you talk about the, the importance and, and how that's utilized in the course of, of play and, and how right. athletes might use one or the other? And, you know, I'll kind of draw from my experience in men's basketball um, that, you know, their jumping demands are very robust. I mean, they do have to use the fast stretch shortening cycle and maybe perform some repeated jumps. They also have to sprint. They also have to change direction. That's all going to be classified there. But they often have, uh, you know, situations where they box out and then load and jump, or they box out and essentially perform a static jump and come right for, from that position. And so uh, they have to have a, a very well-developed uh, spectrum of jumping capabilities, uh, for example. And so I think 
that's where you get into a situation where including both the traditional and modified RSI is very logical for uh, a sport like basketball just because the the demands uh, that they have to store and return eccentric energy, essentially the conditions in which they have to do that uh, are very versatile. And so that you have to have tests that uh, reflect their capabilities across a spectrum of demands there. Sure. Uh, and so how are you, uh, last question here as we kind of finish this up, mm -hmm. and, and how are you using these tests to adjust training on the fly? Can you give some practical examples of, or like maybe a direction you're trying to head or some feedback you're getting from the plates and how you're going to adjust based on that? Yeah, so last year um, I had the opportunity to work with our women's volleyball program here at ETSU for just the season, um, but uh, we performed uh, jump testing there to help us kind of acutely manage fatigue but also inform that adaptation. Again, I think it's very similar to basketball and the RSI mod has some scalability there, but um, it wasn't a we, – we used uh, – Number one, we collected baseline measurements. So we had them come in on two different days and perform, I think it was like five or six jumps on each day, just to really get uh, a look at the baseline capabilities of those athletes, but also see the uh, within individual variation, uh, even within a day, because if we're going to make decisions based off the change, we need to see, you know, basically how volatile each person is uh, within a day and across two days when there's no fatigue present. Um, so that was a really, really important piece. Um, but then we used uh, pretty simple stuff like smallest worthwhile change or percent change or percent difference between the first and second day. And, you know, kind of tried to look at it in, um, in some different manners. Uh, but the most important thing is that we didn't look at it in a vacuum. It wasn't, uh, you know, this dropped, so we're going to make an adjustment or this increased, so we're the best strength coaches in the world. Um, it was more like, okay, we have uh, acute chronic ratios, we have training monotony, we have our volume loads in the weight room, we have a lot of information, uh, we had wellness questionnaires, all kinds of stuff that was going into the decision-making process. And so um, a lot of times it became our red flag or our warning sign that like, hey, do we need to take a closer look at this athlete? Do we need to take a closer look at uh, where their workloads are at or, you know, some different things happening there. And uh, basically a similar system uh, was what I implemented while I was at DePaul as well, uh, that it was more um, our red flag alert that I would go talk to the coach and say, hey, this is what's going on. And adjustment didn't necessarily come down the pipeline for there, depending on when we had uh, scheduled down weeks or, you know, there's so many aspects to consider that I think the most important thing um, is to have a very intimate knowledge of your own process and what you're putting those athletes through and then how monitoring informs their, their response and then your uh, eventual response to that. Um, and so it does become a broader look um, at more than just RSI, but I think that's how you can perform uh, the fatigue management side of athlete monitoring very, very well. Yeah, I really like seeing where great coaches are taking this field in terms of putting it all together with like the acute chronic load and the, and the fatigue management and using all those. So really good stuff, John. Today's talk, I mean, it's it, you know eccentric training, cluster training, jump testing. I mean, I, these are things that I truly love. So thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate oh, being you. on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate it, Joel. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did putting it together, talking to John. And I just, again, I just love talking to people who have a little more attention to detail than I do in many times in terms of some of the fine points of what's happening inside the muscles as we put exercises in the system. And so I think there's just so many derivatives there between the eccentric, the cluster training, the, the full and partial, partial range and the results of it all that can make you a better coach and athlete. So I truly hope you enjoy that episode. Also, don't forget, leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We'd really appreciate that. Finally, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.